Hey, everybody. Thanks for joining me for another Mo News Conversation. We try to bring on major newsmakers and experts to break down the headlines in the news beyond our daily podcast. I'm excited today to continue our rollout of the third part of our three-part conversation. Congratulations. You have made it to part three. This is my interview recently with former CIA acting director Michael Morrell on all things Al-Qaeda, Afghanistan, the war on terror, China. And today we focus in on Ukraine and Russia. The war this week officially hits the six-month mark since Russia first invaded Ukraine back on February 24th. I know you will get a lot out of this conversation. Morel goes in-depth with me on how the CIA estimate on how this war would go was so wrong. They thought Putin would win this in less than a week. We will talk about how long this might last, why it is so crucial Putin has stopped here before he moves on to other countries, and how Putin's background as a former KGB agent and intelligence guy himself impacts his war choices. Michael Morell and I had the opportunity to work together during my time at CBS, where he was the senior national security contributor at the network. I was the executive producer of the CBS Evening News. Michael, prior to his time at CBS, spent more than three decades at the CIA, where he was acting director of the agency twice in 2011 and then again in 2012 to 2013. He was the deputy director for three years. He worked with multiple presidents, and one of his roles was to maintain the CIA's relationships with foreign leaders, among many other duties. One notable thing, Michael was the only person who was both with President Bush on 9-11 and then with President Obama on May 2nd, 2011, when bin Laden was brought to justice, a pretty notable thing. He has been steeped in a number of issues, including all things Russia, for decades. He also happens to be the host of the Intelligence Matters podcast, where he speaks with top leaders in the U.S. intel community. I think uh, if you're interested in this podcast, you might get a lot out of that podcast. So check out his podcast when you have a moment. I always very much enjoy speaking with Michael. He's very gracious to join me every few months to provide his perspective on all the major challenges facing U.S. foreign policy uh, thinkers, makers, US, the U.S. intelligence community. He's advised, as I said, multiple presidents. And in this case, you really get an inside glimpse of what are the types of things a former CIA director might tell a president in a situation room. As we delved into all things Russia and Ukraine, I began this conversation where we had last left off. So I'd last spoken with Michael back in February, just days before Putin invaded, when he was telling me that it might just be a matter of days that Putin could take Ukraine in just a few days. So, of course, I wanted to begin this conversation with why those predictions didn't come true. Michael, you and I spoke back in February. It was actually a couple days before the invasion as things were ratcheting up. And you said there were assessments that Putin could take Kiev in just a matter of days. Yep. They would only take him a couple days. Yep. What did those assessments get wrong? What have we learned about Vladimir Putin, Russia, the capabilities, um, the state of our intelligence six yeah. months into this war? Yeah. So we learned that we were pretty much all wrong. I don't know anybody. <laughs> I don't know anybody who didn't say that he would be in Kiev in, you know, a matter of days. Um, so yeah. what, what did we get wrong? Um, we got wrong the state of the Russian military. You know, Putin had spent 25 years investing in that military, and it turned out to be um, not the military that everybody thought. Um you know, in, in in a sense, militaries reflect the nature of the societies that they came from. So, you know, this is a mil- the, the Russian military is riddled with corruption. You know, no surprise. Um, it was dominated by conscripts who didn't have a lot of training, had never been in battle, um, who didn't want to be in battle. Um, 
it was the Russians have been known for years to have bad logistics, poor logistics. Um, and, you know, sustaining one line of, 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 of combat is one thing. But in the initial invasion, Putin had four to five lines of combat that he needed support with with logistics. Um, the leadership wasn't there. Um, so the the Russian military performed well below um, what everybody thought its capabilities were. Um, and, uh, and then on the flip side, the Ukrainians performed much better than everybody thought. Um, and that was really all about will to fight. Um, it turns out at the end of the day that, that will to fight matters more than capability to fight. Um, and you can kind of understand that, right? Um, well, it, it, there's parallels in Afghanistan and Iraq to some extent, right? Afghanistan, right? Um, and it's much harder to to objectively measure will to fight. It's pretty easy to count airplanes and tanks and soldiers. It's really tough to measure will to fight. So um, people got that wrong as well. Um, so you put those two things together, and you have the outcome that we that we saw. Though it's not a new thing that there's corruption within the the Russian military. That there's a you know very I mean those issues go back to the Cold War. Um, is it that the intelligence assessments minimize that? I don't know what the intelligence community was saying, yeah. and, and 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 more importantly, why it was saying it, right? Yeah. Um, and what it was basing those judgments on. You know, I can tell you that I was basing my judgment on the investment that Putin had made in his mm. military. Um, that's what I was, that's what I was betting on. Um, and I didn't see the problems, you know, I didn't have the information to see those problems. I didn't see the problems. So I don't know why the intelligence community got it wrong. Um, they promised us to study, right. They promised us to study. In fact, um, uh, uh, we, we haven't seen that yet. In fact, they promised us studies on Afghanistan, which they haven't delivered on either. Right. right. I find an irony there that at this within a few months, an assessment that the that the Afghan military could hold longer than it did proved to be wrong. And the assessment that Putin was stronger than we thought yep. proved to be wrong. Almost, you know, com- complete. And it turns uh, out we were wrong for the same reason. Right. Will the fight. Correct. Um, you know, the Afghan army just collapsed and ran away with its president. Right. And mm-hmm. the Ukrainian army. You know, did not run away. Actually, it stood up and citizens joined, you know, and part of and and its president didn't run away. Right. President stood up. Um, So, yeah, I know it's interesting. Um, It's interesting. It needs to be it needs to be studied and lessons need to be learned for sure. How important is that when you're doing um, intelligence work, uh, those post those studies of of why something was wrong, yeah. So um, think, and 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 how does that inform the agency in the future? Yeah. So I think you have to study both both when you get something right, as well as when you get something wrong, because you want to learn the lessons of why you got something right, so you do more of that, um, and you want to learn the lessons of why you got something wrong, so you do less of that. So both of them need to be studied, and we tend to only study failures. Um, so I would argue we need to study successes as much as we study failures. Um, if you, if you study failures seriously, and if you take it seriously, and it's not just a political exercise, but you take it seriously, like we did, uh, um, with Iraq weapons of mass destruction, 
you actually learn things. And, you know, the main thing we learned on Iraq was not that the analysts made the wrong judgment, because if you actually looked at all the information that they had, that information took you to the judgments they made about chemical weapons and biological weapons and the nuclear program. What we learned when we looked at it was that what they really got wrong was their level of confidence in that judgment, right? They said it was medium to high, but if you actually forced them to really think about their level of confidence, they would have ended up at low. And, you know, the intelligence community would be in a completely different place with regard to Iraq WMD if they had said to, if we, I was there, if we had said to President Bush, you know, we think he's got chemical weapons, biological weapons, and we think he's restarting his nuclear weapons program. But what you really need to know, Mr. President, is that we only have low confidence in this for the following reasons. That would be a very, very different situation than where we ended up. So what we learned from Iraq WMD is that that confidence level needs as much attention and as much thought and as much rigor as the judgment itself. And now because of Iraq, everybody's familiar with these confidence levels. All the analysts are familiar. The leadership of the intelligence community is familiar. The policymakers are familiar. And you talk to them as much about confidence levels as you do about judgments. And, and of course, I would add on Iraq that obviously there's politi- politicians and policymakers who, with their own viewpoint, uh, are able to pick through intelligence assessments for to pursue their own agendas, right? Sure. And, That's something that... Yeah, and that really happened. That, that happened less on the weapons of mass destruction side than it did on the links between Iraq and Al-Qaeda side, where Got certain it. policymakers took things way too far. Um, but basically, you know, on the weapons of mass destruction side, we believed um, he had those. Um, every intelligence, um, every intelligence service in the world believed it. The United Nations weapons inspectors believed it. Academics mm-hmm. who looked at the program believed it. Um, so everybody got that wrong. Um, you know, at the end of the day, because because at the end of the day, um, what Saddam was doing was he got rid of the programs, but he didn't want to tell anybody because he didn't want the Iranians to know. But he was hoping that U.S. intelligence was good enough to be able to see that he got rid of them so that the sanctions would go away. And then once the sanctions went away, his plan was to restart all these programs. So so in a sense, you know, we were not able to see what he was hiding but wanted us to see. I took a course with a a guy named Gerald Post. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, uh, I, unfortunately, he passed away uh, relatively yes. recently. But he, his job was to do the psychological uh, portraits of these leaders. Yeah. And, you know, they often do things that um, are, are, are where the logical explanation isn't the explanation. I'll give you an yeah. example. So, um, you know, when Saddam was captured, um, an FBI agent and a CIA officer um, interviewed him every day from the day he was caught until the day he was executed. And one day he wasn't feeling well and he was taken to, um, he was taken to see a military doctor. Um, and he started flirting with a U.S. military nurse who wouldn't give him the time of day. 
And on the walk back to his cell, he said, how come she didn't, you know, how come she didn't, she wouldn't talk to me, right? How come she didn't give me the time of day? And they jokingly told him, and, and, and this was when he had shaved. This was when he was clean shaven. Um, and they jokingly told him, um, American women like men with facial hair. It, it was a joke. Um, and he, so he started growing his beard out. When he, <laughs> when he walked into, this is a story about Jerry Post. When he walked into the courtroom, right, for his trial, um, Jerry, who was on CNN, um, commented about his beard that he was playing to the Islamic judges, right? He was, he, he, that he grew his facial hair out because he was playing to the Islamic judges. No, he was trying to get the attention of American nurses, right? It's, it's not quite what you think it is. It is very <laughs> difficult to get inside somebody's head. He- Human beings are human beings. Men yes. are men. It turns out at the end of the day. <laughs> but but I I, I want to come back uh, to Russia here because despite um, not taking Kiev in just a couple of days, we're now six months in. You know they've taken the Russians uh, anywhere between twenty and twenty five percent of of Ukraine. It's bogged down. What what is your sense of how long this could last? I mean I've seen the chairman of the Joint Chiefs say it could last years if not. A decade, and how how does this end potentially? So you have to, I think, break this down into the military war, so the war on the battlefield, and the economic war. So if you look at the military war on the battlefield, um, the the current situation favors Ukraine. So the Russians, when they made their tackle, tactical decision to um, withdraw to eastern Ukraine and focus on the Donbas. Um, you know, they had already lost um, a lot of force. Um, they, they've made some gains um, in the Donbass region, um, but very minor, but they've paid an excruciatingly high price. So they've lost, the estimates are about 75,000 soldiers killed or captured um, out of a total. These are of, the Russians. These, these are the Russians, right? 75,000 yeah. soldiers um, out of a total of about 260,000 and, you know, really out of a total of about 200,000 um, who had been, um, you know, engaged inside Ukraine. So a huge loss. Um, their precision guided munitions um, are running extraordinarily low because they can't replace them because they need imported parts that they can't get. So they're spent. So the Russian military is spent. The Russian military cannot move forward in a significant way, possibly for years. Um, the Ukrainians, you know, have now have weapons that they could use um, if if we give them the right number of weapons and if we possibly give them some additional weapons, they might have a capability to drive the Russians out of Ukraine, which would be a win, a big win. And that's what I think needs to happen here. We need to give them even more weapons. Um, So that's the battlefield war, you know, advantage Ukraine. Then you go to the economic war. And yes, things are tough in Russia. You can't get imported goods. Um, Any manufacturing done in Russia that that, 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 that relies on imported goods is basically shut down. So car production is shut down. Um, so Russia's probably lost about 30% of its GDP this year. So things, things are tough there. 
Um, but things are even tougher in Ukraine economically. So Ukraine's probably going to lose about 50% of its GDP this year. So half their GDP um, gone because of this war. Um, they are running a budget deficit of about of over $10 billion a month um, mm -hmm. in terms of government spending um, that they need filled. Um, so how long can they sustain themselves? And then you get to the issue of the economic cost on the West, you know, in terms of inflation, which is kind of minor, but then you get to energy, um, energy prices. prices, right? And you particularly get to natural gas that today is 20 times more expensive in Western Europe than it was when the war started, you know, really remarkable. Um, and we're coming up on winter here, right? And I think what Putin is hoping is that as we get into winter and as, as things really start to bite both in Ukraine and in Western Europe, that the Western alliance will start coming apart. And then he'll be in a position and, and, and Western Europe and Ukraine will want to negotiate. And he'll, he'll be willing to negotiate, right? Because he can't go any further militarily and he'll want to draw the line right where it is, right? Mm -hmm. So he's made some gains relative to where he was in 2014. Um, so he'll want to draw the line right where it is. He'll want the sanctions to go away. You know, he'll want there to be a ceasefire and then he will rebuild his forces over a period of time and he'll be back to fight another day, right? So I think, I feel that if that's the situation we end up in, that that's a win for him because the sanctions go away in large part because that'll be part of the deal. He can sell this politically as a win at home. I regained the Donbass. I regained this Russian speaking part of Ukraine. Um, that's what I wanted to do from the beginning, which is not true, but that's what he'll say. Uh, so that'll be a win for him. So I think we really need, before winter sets in, we need to go all in with the Ukrainians. I mean, not fight for them, right? Um, but right, everything short of U.S. troops on the ground. short of U.S. troops on the ground. We should try um, to have the Ukrainians push the Russians out of Ukraine before winter comes. This is often a bet, uh, you know, that uh, whether it's the Middle East, whether it's China, whether it's Russia, the, the, the bet is always that the Westerners lose focus, lose faith, uh, get impatient and move on. Right. I had dinner one night with three Chinese intelligence officers and they were talking about good and bad millennia. So they were talking about a good thousand years in Chinese history, a bad thousand years in Chinese history. Right. And we worry about the next quarter. Or the next four years, <laughs> we, we we lose perspective. We're we're about in a couple of years. We're going to be two hundred and fifty years old exactly. as a country, which seems old until that you talk it. about China. Exactly. Um, talk to me about Putin in your personal experience as someone who worked in intelligence. Uh, Putin himself is somebody yeah. who came up through intelligence. How do you yeah. think that impacts how he operates, who has influence over him, and and how he conducts himself as a leader? Oh gosh. Um, so I think Bob Gates has it right. Bob says that when you look in Putin's eyes, you see KGB, KGB, KGB. Um, Vladimir Putin is a thug and a bully. Um, Vladimir Putin only believes in relative power. How much does he have and how much do you have if you're his adversary? Um, he is amoral. He has no morals. Um, 
you know, he doesn't care uh, if his if Ukrainian women and children die. He doesn't care if his own women and children die. Um, you know, he he doesn't believe that negotiations can can lead to win win. There's only win lose in a negotiation in his mind. Um, he takes risks. You know, most people are risk averse. He is risk prone. He will take risks, and he's a particularly dangerous kind of risk taker. Um, when he takes a risk and succeeds, he's often willing to take an even bigger risk. Um, he's the type of leader who does not welcome um, his subordinates telling them what what they really think, right? And so he creates an atmosphere where they end up telling him what they think he wants to hear rather than what they really think. Uh, that's a very Which dangerous. we're sort of seeing play out here, right? In absolutely. Ukraine. Absolutely. Right. This is this is this has been the case ever since he came to power. Um, he's surrounded by, you know, his inner circle is about 15 guys, all guys, um, no women. Um, all most all of them, there's a couple couple military guys in there, but the rest of them were former KGB. Um, and they were all with him um, when he was in St. Petersburg. Um, so they've been with him a very long time. Um, he came up through St. Petersburg, right? Through elected office there. Yes, yes. Um, and they've been with him ever since then. And by the way, you know, there were two parts to the KGB. You know, and, 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 and when the KGB split, um, it split into these two parts. So one part is the FSB. It's the internal security service inside Russia. Those are the bullies and thugs. And then the other part is the SVR. It's the external intelligence service, right? It's the it's the Russians who go overseas and try to recruit people to spy for Russia. They're not bullies and thugs. They're pretty sophisticated. Um, and where did Vladimir Putin come from in that old KGB? He came from the thug side, right? Mm. He was sent to he was sent essentially inside the Soviet bloc to East Germany, right? He was an internal guy. Uh, he wasn't sent to Paris or London or Washington, right? So, so he was, he came from the bully and thug side and all of the guys who surround him are basically bully and thug guys. You lay out a scenario where eventually there's some sort of compromise, but Putin is in it for the long run, is in it for the long war. So what, what does the U.S. need, what do Americans need to understand about uh, what we're seeing play out in Ukraine and and how many years from now we'll still be talking about uh, Ukraine, Putin, Russia? Yeah, so there's two scenarios here. So one scenario is the, 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 the preferred scenario, which is that we are able to supply the Ukrainians, and we being the West, right, are able to supply the Ukrainians with the arms and the money that they need to push Russia out and actually defeat the Russian army. And that very well might put an end to Vladimir Putin politically. And then we don't need to worry about him anymore. That's the preferred scenario. The other right. scenario is the scenario we talked about where there's some sort of ceasefire and he lives to fight another day, right? And if he lives to fight another day, there will be another fight, right? He mm. will wanna come back and finish Ukraine. And if he finishes Ukraine, He'll probably want to do Moldova. Um, after he does Moldova, he might even want to do the Baltic states and take on. Well, I was going to say that Moldova is the last one that's not in NATO at this point. Exactly. Exactly. So eventually he will want to do the Baltics. 
um, and then you're in a really tough spot. So, so the scenarios are win this or the fight will continue down the road. Uh, the pre- pretty stark as you lay it out there, uh, Michael Morell, former acting uh, director of the CIA. <laughs> like basically, and, and basically, just to define, for, just just to translate for folks, when he says "do the Baltics," that's World War Three, Mister Morell. Well, if if we choose to stand behind them. Right. Yeah. I, I think that would be a tough decision for NATO, uh, um, for NATO. No doubt in my mm-hmm. mind that that the U.S., the U.K., the French, probably even the Germans would want to, you know, have World War Three here to defend the Baltics. But but everybody in NATO would have to agree. Right. Um, for it to be a NATO operation. And would NATO come apart at that moment? That's the kind of thing that that's that that Vladimir Putin's thinking about. Um, I have one more question here on Russia, and it, it involves the uh, Brittany Griner situation yeah, yeah. and prisoner trades and the big yeah. debate here about them. Uh, she's the WNBA player uh, who's there. There's another a former U.S. Marine, Paul Whelan. Uh, there's been a debate within the administration as to whether to engage in these prisoner trades. We have done them before. Are we Should we be offering a Russian arms dealer for U.S. citizens? Does that incentivize more kidnapping? Where do you come down on, on these sorts of uh, situations and, and the risks uh, the factors here as you weigh uh, prisoner trade with countries like uh, the Iran's and the Russia's, and yeah. et cetera. These are really hard. These are really hard because the families of the Americans who have been imprisoned, um, you know, either wrongfully or their sentences are much longer than they should be for political reasons, right? You're meeting with those families. They're begging you, right, to help in any way you can. And at the same time, you've got people like me coming in the room and saying, if you do this, you're just going to incentivize, right, the taking of hostages. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've never been on the side of having to make the decision. I've always been on the side of saying, here are the consequences Mm. of making the decision. So I've had the easy job. Um, But it, it, look, it's really hard. It is a really hard decision to make. Um, because you're dealing with a set of current circumstances that cry out for doing the trade, while at the same time you know that this is just going to incentivize more of it. Michael Morell, thank you for all of your time. You're welcome. Uh, your your insight uh, into all of the uh, a number of the big challenges. I appreciate your wisdom as always, and uh, want to remind folks to subscribe to Intelligence Matters, uh, Michael's podcast, where he breaks down all these issues with some of the other folks who were at the senior levels of uh, intelligence gathering and operations, et cetera. Michael, thank you. You're welcome. Great to be with you, Moshe. I want to thank Michael Morell again for his time, his perspective. Again, please, if you enjoyed this conversation, please go back to the last couple of weeks, the uh, section we did on Al-Qaeda and uh, Afghanistan last week and the previous week on China. And I know that you'll get a lot out of it and be the uh, smartest person at the dining room table or amongst your friends when these issues come up in the uh, subsequent weeks. A reminder to all of you to follow or subscribe to this show and leave us a review. Every review matters. Also subscribe to our newsletter, the Mo News newsletter over at monews.bulletin.com. And follow me over on Instagram, if you don't already, at Moshe, at M-O-S-H-E-H. I'll see everyone back here tomorrow.